Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this episode, Paul Song joins fellow director Jeannie Finlay to provide an X-ray view of his documentary, Polystyrene, I Am A Cliché. Paul and Jeannie discuss the act of portraying punk icon Polystyrene, collaborating with her daughter Celeste Bell, and the importance of trust in documentary filmmaking. We hope you enjoy. My name's Jeannie Finlay. I am a white woman in my 40s with shoulder-length reddish hair, I guess. And I'm Paul Sung. I'm a biracial British-Chinese man um, with short, dark hair in my mid-40s and a blue T-shirt. Okay, well, thanks so much for um, for joining us today, Paul. I'm really excited to talk to you about it. So I think you've got a really... Um, I can't believe this is only your third film, and but you've, you've been pulling together a body of work that's just touching on some really interesting things. And I just want to pick a few pick through a few of the themes of the things and just find out a bit more about this film in particular. Hopefully people who've been, um, who are watching this today have, have had the opportunity to watch the film or are going to watch it on Sky Arts because it's available, it's available to watch there. Um, polystyrene, I am a cliche. So, I mean, first of all, I'm really interested in, in finding out about what brought you to this um, topic and what what was it about um, polystyrene story that just made me made you just sort of think, yeah, that's that's something for me because it's a big commitment. These films take years, so yeah. I mean, we didn't realize quite how long it would take because the first two films I made, you know, took a year and, and eighteen months, but this one probably took you know four or five years. But it was it was sparked by um, a writer, a woman called Zoe Howe, um, who had done a few Q and As with. And we, you know, got chatting and um, Zoe's brilliant music writers written a really brilliant book on the slits um, and Jesus and Mary Chain and a few other books. And I said to Zoe, you know, if you have any good ideas for music docs, give us a shout. Because my first film was about a band, um, as you know, from Nottingham, Sleaford Mods, but was also kind of a political film. And then the second one was a purely political film about the housing crisis. So it was kind of in the mood to do something that was, you know, about another artist again. And so... Zoe had three really good ideas, um, the best of which was she was you know, going to be writing a book with Polly's daughter, Celeste. And um, that was one that I was really interested in. So Zoe arranged a meeting between the three of us um, and we spoke about, you know, Polly. And because I think when you're thinking about making a documentary, it helps if you know something about the subject, but you obviously don't know everything. I think approaching a story in that way so that you can discover things in the way that an audience would. So that was the starting point, really. And I think what drew me to Polly's story was initially, you know, I knew X-Ray Specs, but I didn't know as much about Polly's solo stuff. I didn't know, you know, her backstory. You know, as, as a black woman from a, from a council estate who struggled very much with her identity, and it was that thing really that sparked my interest to sort of really want to make a film because, you know, I grew up in similar area to Polly in South East London, um, as somebody who's, who's mixed race. You know, my mum and dad were never, to, well, they were together, but not as I remember them. And so Polly was also from a similar situation in that, you know, she'd come from um, a background where, you know, her, her father and, and her mother were not together. Um, and the, the problems um, that she experienced with her identity were things that I could relate to, you know, not fitting in for her with the black community or with the white community. 
And for me, you know, being half Chinese, I didn't know any other Chinese kids until I was probably about, I don't know, 12, 13 at secondary school. So having that experience of growing up and not kind of fitting in with a white community, a white working class community, um, and not really knowing any kids of colour. I mean, there were there were black kids at my school, but they were in like a little gang. And so very much I felt um, I didn't really want to be um, Chinese. It was kind of, you know, coming from a, a, what people refer to then as a broken home was was a source of shame for me. And I think, you know, coming from that environment and, and knowing the struggles that Polly went through and the things that she wrote about in her music and the things that helped a lot of people through that was a really... I suppose something that I had empathy for, of course, but also something that I could kind of relate to, you know, when you don't fit into one world or the other, um, you have that struggle in your life. And I think that informed a lot of her creativity. And when I look back on these, I mean, I I didn't really make films until I was much, much older, but it certainly, I think, informed uh, my struggle growing up of of, um, taking me many, many years to, to accept who I was. It probably wasn't until I was in my you know, teenage years I accepted and, and grew to love being mixed race and grew to accept and love being working class. But very early on, really didn't, you know, feel comfortable with those things. And that, apart um, in terms of Polly's story, was something that I felt I could connect with. Were these things that you sort of talked about to Polly's daughter? I mean, it'd be, be interesting to know about how you actually got access to the story, because obviously... You know, as directors, we're all looking for the right story and we're looking, it sounds like it was a, a story that, that inspired something in you, per, like a personal connection. Um, like hearing you describe it, it, it seems completely obvious why you wanted to mm. make this film. But is that, was, how did you go about getting access and getting Polly's daughter on board? Yeah, so I mean, when the three of us met, so it was me, Celeste and Zoe, and we always knew we were going to make the film together. And as time wore on, Celeste actually became co-director on the project because she had some brilliant ideas. There were there was a time when we basically run out of money um, and we had a shoot when only three of us could go and it was in India. Um, and basically, you know, you've got like a really good DOP and obviously Celeste, who's in the film, I said, guys, you know, you you need to go. So the, the point that Celeste kind of came on as co-director, I think really elevated the project because mm-hmm. nobody could tell the story as well as Celeste and as well as being in the film, you know, she was um, she was driving the story. I mean, the story is about Polly, but, you know, our approach to telling it was always going to be through Celeste's lens. And I think one of the things I would have maybe found a bit problematic would, would have been for a man to direct a film about a woman, but you know, the majority of our team were female, you know, our producer, Rebecca, our editor, Zanna, um, our composer, Marina. Um, I mean, the guys on the project were me, um, Nick and, and Matthew, our co-producer, but everybody else was a woman. And I think it was very important that it had that lens. And I think, you know, in terms of, you know, how you get access to somebody to tell a story, it was a case of just meeting up, you know, probably three, four times and an earning trust really, because Celeste had very strong ideas about the story that she wanted to tell. And the more we kind of spoke about it, I mean, I, I had my ideas and I, and I, you know, set out my stall to tell a story where, you know, we wouldn't use talking heads, you know, we would only use archive, that we would visit these places that were iconic in Polly's life. And it later sort of came, you know, more about Celeste actually being in the frame um, and, you know, actually seeing her. But, the, one of the first things I said to her was, you know, would you be willing to to write a series of letters to your mum? And we would tell the story kind of through your narration. And those letters became, over time, a more direct address. And, you know, Celeste became more and more part of the story. But 
I think it was it, like, like, you know, you know, it's Jeannie in, in any situation where you're making a very personal story, it's someone else's story, but you know, you are, I think it, it's almost like, this is probably a crap analogy, but I suppose it's like, if you, if you're the director and you're working with someone that's not made a film before, you're kind of like building a house and, and putting a structure in, but it is that person that is really, you know, giving the house its color and, and furnishing it and decorating it, you, you've just kind of provided a framework. And I, I kind of saw that as my role was to, you know, establish a, a storytelling style very early on. And then for Celeste to actually really bring all of her experience to it, to, to share what were very difficult moments in her life. But, you know, it was a rewarding way to work with somebody because, you know, you kind of, there was nowhere or no point where we, you know, were pushing Celeste to sort of do things. She was coming up with, the ideas with with the things that had happened to her and her mum. And I think, you know, it wasn't something that where we were going to make a film that was going to purely set out to just, you know, we, we celebrate Polly, but Celeste was, you know, the person that would say, you know, but she wasn't an angel, you know, she neglected me and there were these problems and she was contradictory. And I think we hopefully managed to tell a more sort of well-rounded story in that respect. And just thinking about that, because, you know, you really go there in terms of discussing um, Polly's mental health and the challenges of that. But can you talk about, I mean, it, it might be that that wasn't a thing, but what were the challenges of co-directing in that situation? If you've got, you know, I'm just speaking from my own experience of making very personal films. Like when when I made Seahorse with Freddie McConnell, you know, as a trans guy having a, having a baby, and when he got pregnant, his gender dysphoria was completely overwhelming. And part of my role was to lean in when things got tough it was to sort of to to look after that so I mean he he always said that he wanted someone else to direct that film so that he because he would have just like put the camera away <laughs> mm. um and there were times when it was unbearably difficult it was very 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 hard so what you know films are hard what what were the challenges of co-directing or, or was it okay yeah. I mean, I think it, generally it was really, it went really well. I think there were a couple of moments where, you know, we would disagree over a particular line or something like that. And ultimately it's a less story and you have to be, I think, respectful of that. And there were, I would say most of those sort of moments, you know, we went with what she wanted to do. And I would say, you know, in hindsight, she was right. You know, there were certain things um, that, you know, when you're in the edit, you know, it's like you're trying out certain things. And there was a few things that I thought were a little bit TV. Um, there's a trend at the moment in documentary, you know, where you, you see the clapperboard um, and you see just before. Oh, you see people getting their mic on. and Yeah, I am really I really don't like that. I find it really, I don't want to see behind the curtain. You know, I know what, well, I know how these things are made. I, I can, the first few times I saw it, I mean, I saw it, I think in the, um, I think it was a, the Thatcher five-parter thing where they were showing, and that was quite interesting to see her where this, you know, no offense to anyone that likes it, but where this mask then just comes on of this woman who, you know, is one thing before, you know, the cameras are rolling and another thing afterwards. Um, but I didn't really want that in our film. And there was a bit where you kind of, we had Nick with the clapperboard and I really didn't like things like that. But then there were other little lines where I thought, okay, I'm not really sure about this, but in hindsight, watching things back, I think they were moments where we did need a bit more levity because it is, you know, very, um, it's a very dark story in, in some moments. So I think generally, I mean, ultimately there was never, um, 
we never, you know, we never fell out. You know, when you're making a film with someone over such a long period of time, it kind of helps if you don't fall out. But I <laughs> always... <a> bonus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get through it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always understood, though, that because it's a personal story, because it's, you know, about her life and the duty that she has to her mum, and I think that she has been absolutely brilliant in the way that um, she celebrated her mum, not only in the film, but in the wonderful book that, that they wrote, Celeste and Zoe, and the exhibitions that have gone on. Because to me, you know, like anyone, I, I have a duty to, you know, to Celeste and to, and to Polly, but it's a different thing when it's your mum, you know, if you're making something yes. about your mum, a completely different level of, um, of, of not just really respect, but, you know, it's something that most people want to kind of make their parents proud. But when you're, you know, when you're one of your parents is polystyrene and, you know, a, a, an artist in her own right and somebody that people around the world have, you know, loved and enjoyed and respected and looked up to that the, the level of expectation is, is even higher. So I think, you know, I was always aware that if Celeste didn't want to do something, then we weren't going to go. But like I say, we didn't really ever argue over it. It was probably just a couple of lines here and there. There was there was one thing I always wanted to get into the film because I kind of see Polly a bit like um, Cassandra in Greek mythology, you know, this woman that could see the future, but no one believed her. And I really wanted to get that into the script. And I think it was in there a couple of times, but it, it wasn't quite feeling right for Celeste and it was taken out and that was the only one I was a bit like I really wish that one was in but <laughs> you know Celeste's a brilliant writer and you know gave such a great performance with her voiceover of being in the film that you know I'm, re I'm really happy with what we made. Um, tell me about the decision to not you know you interview um, a load of icons um, a load of musical icons tell me about the decision to not show them so you just hear them in audio and that generally runs, they become like this this seamless sort of voice. I'm, I'm making this hand movement because that is the hand movement that looks like a voiceover <laughs> track going over yeah. archive. T talk to me about that decision, but and then also about, you know, the limitations, but also the liberation of doing that. Because it's, it's a choice. It's a, yeah, I mean, it was... It was inspired by, you know, Asif Kapadia's work, you know, in Senna, in Amy, in Maradona, um, you know, because in those films you've come really immersed in the story because, you know, what you're seeing and what you're hearing have this relationship. And because we were telling a story across multiple decades, um, my reasoning behind it was to think, you know, if you see Vivian Westwood or you see, you know, Don Letts or you see Kathleen Hanna in the present day, um, you're not going to sort of immediately be as immersed in the past. And I, I also wanted to get away from, you know, using Talking Heads in my first couple of films because, you know, I didn't go to film school. I learned on the job. My film school was making two feature docs with, you know, very little experience of having done that before. And one of the things I realised after doing that twice was I didn't want to do Talking Heads ever again. I thought there are more interesting ways to tell stories. Um, the other in inspiration for it was Julian Temple's The Filth and the Fury, where the pistols are sort of shot in silhouette you know they're kind of blacked out like they're kind of witnesses to a crime and I saw Julian Temple do a Q&A and someone in the audience asked him what the decision was there you know was it to be like they were um you know criminals that they committed some heist and he you know quite honestly perhaps semi-humorously said no one wants to see these guys you know fatten in their 40s and um you know no one that we you know interviewed you know it was it was it wasn't a base on not wanting to see them it was more just that you know, 
in wanting people to sort of, you know, be transported back to like the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or the 80s, just seeing this archive and just hearing these voices could do that in a, in a much more direct way because, you know, the human voice doesn't change as much as the face. Mm-hmm. And I think in doing it, the, there were moments where Celeste and I, when we'd run out of money and we were struggling to make the film where we kind of looked at ourselves and thought, did we make a mistake there? Should we have filmed the interviews? And there were a couple of moments where we thought we should have, but if we'd have done that, the film would have come out quicker. And I don't think it would have been as good because we wouldn't have spent as much time with it. And I think, you know, working with um, Zana, our editor, you know, Zana was, was able to, I think, really, you know, we, we, we can give suggestions about archive and there's only a certain amount of archive for certain things out there. But Zana did a great job of actually crafting that film based on, you know, things that she thought. There was a wonderful kind of section on New York that at one point was 30 minutes long. Um, and in the actual film, it's probably closer to sort of like seven or eight minutes. But it was this, it was like a film just about New York and consumerism and Zanna had just kind of looked at our script and, and what we had and essentially, you know, made this film that was taken from, from adverts. It was kind of a bit of Adam, Adam Curtis sort of vibe. Mm. And it was really immersive. And, you know, Celeste and I watched it and we were really struck by it. We knew we had to get it down to sort of seven minutes, but working with someone in that way and being able to, um, you know, see what they were coming up, the decisions that they were making, the kind of montages they were putting together, most of the time, you know, Zana got it spot on. Um, we might say, oh, can you change, you know, this clip for this one? But it was a great way of working. And the thing I, I mean, I've always in my work really valued the editor and seen the editor as being as important as the director, you know. Oh, it's, so, it's, it's one of the most important mm. relationships, I think, in documentary. So important to get it yeah. right. Definitely. I mean, and Susanna really was, you know, as instrumental to the film as Celeste and I really in in terms of like you know working with her and of course because of what happened with Covid we weren't often in the same room by the time we'd got a fair way into the cut we were all in separate rooms and we were kind of using Slack and Zoom and Skype to make the film so I think it was very really important that we had an editor very early on that I mean Zanna knew Polly was because her mum and dad were punk fans but she you know didn't know the complete story and that was really useful because she came to it with that kind of fresh eyes of, you know, knowing obviously, you know, it's about Polly, but it's also about Celeste, but being able to satisfy her own curiosity about the story as we were making. I think I read it. I read, I don't really try, try not to read reviews because you can get obsessed with them, can't you? But there was one I read in Sight and Sound because, you know, you, you respect the reviews in Sight and Sound generally. And the reviewer had said, oh, the, the decision to use Talking Heads, you know, was it budgetary? implying that you know we didn't um have money to shoot talking heads but as you know it's actually would have been cheaper because archive ain't cheap <laughs> it's really expensive mm-hmm. and that's really what slowed us down was to sort of knowing that we had to clear all of that archive really in perpetuity to satisfy you know the funders yeah well i mean we should probably talk about money i'm always a bit loath to talk about money but it's the thing that greases the wheel that enables us to carry on making films particularly like independent feature documentaries you know it's a tricky patchwork of stuff to get together so are you are you a producer on your films as well I was on the first two um not on this one really I mean I was at various points but then once we got um Rebecca in you know I was very happy for Rebecca who is a proper producer rather than 
someone like me that kind of like can. So it's uh, Rebecca Mark, Rebecca Mark Lawson. Yeah, and so like Rebecca was, you know, and then and then um, Matthew Silverman and Daria Nish came in, and they, you know, they are producers. I kind of was like relieved because Celeste and I were kind of like you know bumbling along with it. But so how how long were you filming? Well, you know, recording interviews and working on the film before you'd raised. I mean, we like the whole budget. Oh, probably about four years. I mean, we initially did like a crowdfunder, um, which did well. I mean, we raised about I think seventy-three grand from that, and once we paid out for all of the rewards or something, we had about fifty odd grand, and that enables to enabled us to shoot it, you know, mostly. Um, and then we didn't have any money for a while, and then we got some private investment, which meant that we could begin to to edit the film and produce a cut that then brought in, you know, Screen Scotland and Sky, and then at the end, BFI Doc Society, but. For a long time, there wasn't any money. And for a long time, we were working, you know, with without having been paid. Um, and you know what it's like when you're an indie filmmaker, particularly in documentary, you have to have something on the side that you do. And so I've always had little side jobs that I do. And, you know, it's... What, what do you do on the side? Well, you like to know. Um, just a little bit of teaching. How people make this work? I've, um, I only make films, mm. um, but I've managed to do it by um juggling the projects so while one's in development one's in production or one's in the edit and I live in Nottingham which is cheap cheaper you know so I've cut my cloth I've managed to cut my cloth so I'm always interested in knowing how other people make it work yeah I mean I do a bit of teaching which is you know for mainly through like a charity up here called Screen Education Edinburgh um but I mean a lot of that was kind of you know during the early start of the pandemic was you know cancelled some of the projects that we had going on um like you though I mean I kind of came to realize after doing the first you know film that you have to have one to go to next and I think you know I'm working on a new one now I've got one in development and then one that we're kind of promoting I think it's the way it has to be isn't it you've always got to have several things that might suddenly land you might get a bit of money for um but it's 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 hard, and I think if you look at um, particularly you know over the last forty months, people have been sat on their asses watching you know documentaries, watching films. But the money in our space, in the feature documentary space, is you know apart from BFI Doc Society, you've only really got broadcasters, and it's it's very very difficult. We're all going for the same pots of money, and I think you know BFI Doc Society are great; they're brilliant, and and up here you've got you know Scottish Documentary Institute who are also really good, but it's a small amount of money that everybody is going for and it's, it's yeah. difficult. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I've just written an article in this month's um, Sight and Sound, which is about, I mean, what I sort of feel like is, I sort of, I was asked to write something about BBC4 um, going archive only. And for me, it seemed, it just felt felt like a really sad moment because on on one in one way, you know, there's more feature documentaries than ever with the rise of the big streamers. But you know, if it wasn't for BBC Four, I would still be an artist making work mm. for galleries, or or I don't know what I would be doing. But you know, I'm making my ninth feature, and I've done that because I was able to make my first film for BBC Four, and, and it gave me that opportunity. Mm. I had a a broadcast, and yeah. it was in the press and it led to to me making a feature um and then just like continuing and my fear with the streamers is that 
quiet stories from new, unknown, diverse filmmakers aren't necessarily going to excite the algorithm if it's not about someone famous enough to be known by one name or true crime or a big sports doc. Like, where can the quiet quiet stories be told because for me a broadcast or um you know uh going on on one of the big streamers is the thing that amplifies a small story your story can be intimate but the broadcast can be international and that's a really that's the intoxicating thing for me so anyway I'm you don't need to hear what everything about what I think about the, the state of feature documentaries but it makes me sort of feel like is it going to be possible to continue making that sort of work in the future? Because the broadcast slots, which are essential in feature documentary to form part of that essential sort of patchwork of finance, are just fewer and fewer. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, there should be much more funding, much more of an initiative, much more, well, more schemes to, to find people that would be making those, as you called them, like quiet films, those films that are reflective where, you're, you're learning making that film and you know that's how you know you would be discovered through making a film like that and somebody spotting you rather than being somebody that you know could self-finance something and get spotted that way because I mean it's it's very difficult in the film industry you know as much as it is is, is a very tough place to go into if, if you're working class if you're a person of color if you're a woman you know if, if you're a white middle-class male it's, it's much easier mm. and I think obviously there's been a lot of big steps taken in terms of funding that you know there are um, there's much more awareness about um underrepresented groups being represented but unless there are the spaces for those films to be shown you know where are those films going to be seen yeah and we've, we've had a question from jill nichols and she um she says fascinating to hear how you managed to finance this film over such a long period of time amazing but it comes up as sky arts um how did they get involved and how was that it was brilliant with with sky i mean at one point we were talking to the bbc and we were talking to sky and basically when we were talking to the bbc covid happened and and of course you know you you'd always want to show your film on the bbc because it's the bbc you're going to get it seen in lots of places um but you know they asked if we could wait a bit but we had an offer from sky um there's a really good guy at sky dots called jack oliver who had, you know, seen, I think, a 30-minute section, probably the New York section, actually, and really liked it. And there was the offer there. And, you know, when you've been struggling to make a film for, like, the last several years and there's some money, you know, we weren't going to be precious and say, sorry, no, we'll wait for the BBC, because who knows what would then happen down the line, you know, if the person that's offered you that money could not be in the same position. We're in the middle, well, we're, in the, we're at the start of a pandemic at that point. Mm. So we went with Sky and... Jack was great. I mean, I think his notes were, I mean, you know what it's like when you get notes from producers or from execs, um, they can often be about taste, you know, rather than being about structure or technique. And his notes were brilliant. You know, they were quite precise about, you know, things to do with the story and with, you know, bringing Polly out. Um, and I think the only, the, my only you know hesitation about Sky Arts was that there's adverts and you don't want people to watch your film with adverts. And I remember when the live broadcast happened, you know, I was sitting watching it with some friends and for half an hour, there were no adverts. And I was thinking maybe they've, you know, decided not to do adverts because Polly was against consumerism. And then suddenly, bam, there's Ray Winston, you know, telling people to like, you know, go and bet on 
the next goal in something. <laughs> it was really like, oh, okay. Um, but I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful that Sky, you know, one of the, the first funder that came in and, you know, I'm very grateful to them because the Sky Documentaries channel is a great new space that, and I know there are issues around Sky and, you know, all those political things, but as a, as a documentary space, that is a dedicated documentary channel that has got, you know, funding and, and are buying things now. It's really useful for us. Um, and I would hope it would be, I don't know, you know, it's not Sky Arts and, and Sky Docs are slightly different creatures, but obviously Sky Arts is free. So if you get something on there, you know, people are watching things in different ways. They're not just beholden to like these five major channels. They're not beholden to watching something in real time. Um, so, yeah, they were good to work with. I mean, I'd, I'd love to make another film with them if the opportunity comes around. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to see. Um... We've got another, we have got another question here about the film from Kelly Holmes. I wonder if that's a, a director, Kelly Holmes, or if the, that's the athlete, uh, Kelly Holmes. Anyway, um, I found the film incredibly emotional and there's very much a sense of self-care in the film. Was making the film a cathartic experience for Celeste and yourself? That's a good question. That's a really good question. I mean, we've, we've been asked this question before, so... I feel like I, could, uh, I can answer on behalf of Celeste that she did find moments of it quite cathartic. Um, me personally, um, cathartic would be maybe pushing it a bit too much. Um, there, these were things in terms of my identity and my sense of um, who I am that I began to deal with like years ago. Um, it was more, it, was, it, it wasn't like a case of having to revisit places that I'd necessarily been a long time ago. It was more sort of recognising, I suppose, a kindred spirit. Yes. Whether that was cathartic or not, it was, um, I suppose it was a more empathic experience of, of, you know, seeing this woman who was, you know, this amazing artist who'd been through, you know, these various traumas. I, I suppose it, rather than being cathartic, it made me angry at various points of the way she was treated, because there were things that we discovered during the film, you know, that she, the way she was treated by some of her peers, people like Sid Vicious, you know, locking her in a cupboard. And I'd kind of grown yeah, up. Yeah, that was horrible. Pissed. Yeah, and, and I'd grown up loving the pistols and always thought he was a bit of a twerk, but, you know, it made me angry at various points to sort of see how she was treated by the music industry, to see how, you know, this woman who should have been, you know, just just elevated, this woman, you know, sh who should have been, you know, I wouldn't say put on a pedestal, but should have been supported by an industry, should have been somebody that they would name a foundation after somebody that you know and it just that, that support wasn't there and it kind of when she when she died you know Celeste told me that her mum was at peace you know she she wasn't bitter about anything she she really died at peace and, and her friends said the same that she you know didn't see death as the end she saw it as as, as the next phase and I kind of watching the film I had to then be at peace with it because you know if Polly had reached peace herself you know, as, as somebody making a film about her, I, I kind of just admired her. And I, and I thought uh, as somebody that had been through all of, all of you know, that crap of, of being mistreated by the music industry, being mistreated by men, if she could still kind of have a peace, you know, within herself, my anger, you know, as, as a man, as a guy, um, you know, wasn't really, it was something that I could, you know, maybe deal with and, and maybe internalise a bit. But I think... There are various points in the film that are quite understandably angry. There's the bit during identity when you see footage of protest marches and the rock against racism and stuff. That bit, that stuff made me quite 
energized and quite angry because you know of course we were going through um similar things with, with black lives matter at the time and seeing that kind of resurgence and you know you know yeah the time the timing of um the film felt really felt really good with what we've been sort of seeing in the news and yeah it, it feels like a good fit for the for the times definitely i, I love hearing the uh, identity i actually cleared that in my first film I did, yeah. And use that, yeah. I was very delighted to use to use that song. I'm quite interested in your route into filmmaking because, mm. um, uh, you know, you, this is your third film, but the first film you made is about um, my. Uh, I, I am in Nottingham right now, and um, uh, about the Sleaford Mods, the the princes of uh, the princes of Nottingham, tied up in knots. Um, I'm quite interested in how you how you came to filmmaking, and what it was like coming into that. How old are you when you made that film? I was 39, nearly 40. Um, I mean, when I was younger, um, so I grew up in the 80s, and it never really sort of occurred to me that I, you know, would become a filmmaker. It was something that just seemed very much like, how do you do that? You know, um, I couldn't afford to go to film school or anything like that. So it was just always not wasn't really an option. I know now that that was that was my own sense of limitation that put you know mm-hmm. put the hold on that. But I've always loved cinema, and after I you know you know went to university, I was the first in my family to go to university, and then I got a job. Um, well, I had a series of dead end jobs, and then I went as a mature student, and then got a job like an office job um, as an office manager working for this magazine called Nature Science Magazine. And then I sort of wasn't really challenged in my job. So I did an MA in, in, in film, in film theory rather than film practice. And right. on that, that was at, at Birkbeck. And I, you know, studied under um, Ian Christie, who, who, as you know, like a, somebody who knowledge of film, you know, being able to learn from him was amazing. And um, during that two year period of doing that MA, it kind of rekindled my love for cinema. And then, I met Sleaford Mods in 2014 um, in Brighton. I was doing this sort of write, bit of writing for this music website and I interviewed them. And I, I wasn't at the time thinking about becoming a filmmaker, but I was fascinated by this band. And for those who don't know, you know, their music um, is, 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 a, is a, I suppose it's like a rage against a system that disenfranchises people that are, you know, working class, people that are on the margins of society. And, you know, all it's all there in their lyrics. And I think that, you know, the first lyric of theirs that I really heard and connected with was, as you said, on Tied Up in Knots. And the, the opening line is, um, the smell of piss is so strong, it smells like decent bacon. And to me, that was just such an evocative line because I know that smell, obviously, of urine, but I also, you know, know that smell of funny, expensive bacon. And I just thought, who is this band? And got into their music. And during this interview, um, they told me they were going to be doing a tour of um, places off the beaten track the next year. And in my head, this phrase just came up, which was invisible Britain, you know, this, these areas of the country that, you know, people that live in London um, and other sort of cities, including Edinburgh, don't really know about. I mean, they knew about them a couple of years later when Brexit happened, mm-hmm. not to blame Brexit you know, purely on those places, because as we know, Brexit was also enabled by middle-class voters in the South of England, but, a lot of these places that had felt ignored and marginalised, you know, this band were going to these places to meet their audience directly and play these really small venues. And in my little head, I thought, oh, that would make a, 
a good idea for a music documentary. And the idea just wouldn't go away. And so I found, you know, somebody who actually knew how to make films, uh, Nathan Hanawin. And I said, you know, I've got this idea for a film. Would you be interested in helping me out? And he said, yes. We approached the band. They said, yes. And then we did a crowdfunder and hopelessly underestimated the budget, but raised enough to kind of get on the road with them. How much did you you raise? We raised, I think we asked for seven grand. We raised 14 grand in the end. And obviously, like, I didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, I remember Andy Weatherall said this thing about, it was, um, it's a quote from Orson Welles. And he was talking about when he made Screamadelica, the Primal Scream album. And um, Weatherall said that when he made that, he had the confidence of ignorance. Yeah, that's not to compare myself to the great Orson Welles, but when you don't know what you're doing, you can make mistakes and you can just do things. And with Invisible Britain, I mean, you know, it's a film about Stephen Mods, but it's a film about austerity. It's a road movie, and you know, we 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 didn't know what we were doing. We, I mean, from concept, you know, to, to putting out in cinemas at festival and then a cinema run was eleven months. That's crazy. I'd never do that now. You know, but I just didn't realise that we, I remember like we had, we made, a, we made a cut and then we trimmed it down by five minutes. So we only ever had like one rough cut. We didn't show it to anybody. I think we showed it to, I mean, obviously, you know, I saw it, Nathan saw it, the editor saw it. I think we might have shown it to our exec producer, but we didn't show it to like a group of people and get notes from anyone. And now when I look at it, I mean, it's my first film and, you know, I'm proud of it, but there's so much I would do differently about it. I mean, I'd take off probably like seven minutes from it and cut it slightly differently. But I, you know, just didn't know what I was doing, and I had a full time job at the time. And when it ended, um, you know, the, the the job ended, the contract ran out, and they weren't going to renew it because I think they'd worked out that I was, you know, my head had been turned by making films, and um, I was out of a job. And my, I said to my wife, well, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I better get another job. And she said, Well, why don't you go into filmmaking? Um, and I said, Look, you, you don't just walk into filmmaking. You have to go to film school. And she said, well, You've just made a film, you know. Yeah. It's been shown at cinemas. People, <laughs> um, people have you know said good things about it. So go for it. And and then I made Dispossession. Um, and then yeah, it kind of it, it came as a surprise very late on in life. Um, so yeah, I mean things take as long as they do, don't they? And I, I kind of learnt the hard way by you know making three films and that being my film school. Um, but yeah, it's it, it is what it is. Yeah, well, I mean, I totally agree with that sort of approach. I didn't go to film school and I feel like, you know, especially when I talk to female um, directors, you know, I talk to, I do a lot of muscle classes with younger women and they're sort of saying, you know, I hope that I get to make a feature one day. And it's like, if you can find a story that deserves a long slot and you can find, if you can find the funding or you can just do it bit by bit, I'm definitely of the you know just make it if you can learn from it yeah did you find though like when you were you know starting out and the fact that you hadn't go to you hadn't gone to film school I mean how were your your peers and your contemporaries and how were people that you were you know interacting with? because I found generally our community is supportive but you get the occasional people that are quite resentful of that I don't know I mean I've I found it quite I kind of, I found it quite invigorating to have gone from I was making like large scale video installation stuff for galleries and I remember going to BritDoc. Um, I'd made my first film, which was a sixty minute film. Surprise! So I was commissioned by the BBC off the back of my artwork, 
and a 10 minute sort of non-linear documentary I made. But it meant that I didn't do that sort of, I'm a runner. You know, I didn't make coffee for anyone. I was just a director. (laughs) And then on my third film, I became a producer as well because I knew that it felt really important to me to keep the promises I made and make promises I can keep. And I can only do that if I'm a producer and I've Mm. got the budget and I can control the way that the the way that the the film's made. I mean, in every sense. Um, but I, yeah, I remember like feeling like an imposter at this festival, but then talking to a few people and them sort of saying, well, what have you done? And I was like, well, I've made one film. It was six minutes. And they were like, what? They would made like a five minute film or an eight minute film. And I just sort of thought, well, why? I might as well just carry on. Yeah. And I had an idea for a feature Within four months, we'd got money for a pilot. I was in America shooting the pilot and I was making, so I just sort of thought, I sort of don't care Mm. what other people think. Maybe it's naivety, but also like being in Nottingham, there's a, you know, there isn't a big documentary scene. There's me um, and (laughs) there's one other bloke I know who makes stuff, but it's just us. You know, and that and that's okay. There's a lot of people making horror films and low budget short films, and and there's a real energy to that. So, you know, I I want to make films that are seen all around the world, but I can, I can live in Nottingham and just get on with the work. Yeah. You know, I I also I was pregnant when I got my film commissioned, so it just I just felt really focused. If I wasn't, if I had childcare then that time was really valuable. So I was just going to put it into, mm. into everything. And I've just kept on, kept on going. And now I'm like, oh, God, yeah, I feel okay. But it's, it's taken until the last few films for me to go, oh, yeah, I think I know what I'm doing. No. Absolutely. I mean, for me, it's like <laughs> the one I'm working on now, I finally think, yeah, I think, I think what I'm doing now, whereas <laughs> the, the first three I was still working it out. I've got a a question here from Angelica from and she says in in writing and directing the film was there a difficulty in finding a narrative arc to the piece or did the plot come quite naturally and I would sort of ask I heard you saying I wrote a script what at what stage does the script come in because I've only I've that's not something I ever that's not part of my practice so I'm always interested and how other people do it, really. Yeah, I mean, the script was basically more sort of Celeste and Zoe. I mean, Zoe delivered a script to Celeste and I, and then Celeste and I kind of took that script and moulded it a little bit more because there was a massive gap between what Zoe delivered. But essentially, it was, um, you know, I, I basically set out to go to various places and film, you know, places that were iconic to Polly's life. But then the interviews, you know, that I suppose are the chorus, the Greek chorus of the film, um, were all transcribed and obviously the two of them had written a book which is much more in depth than a film can be because it's longer and it's just text um, so it was a case then of basically having you know knowing that you know the narrative of Polly's life basically goes that you know she is a, a, a young uh, girl who is, is you know troubled by her identity um, has those kind of struggles um, decides that she wants to be a musician goes uh, to see the Sex Pistols on her 19th birthday, is inspired, takes that kind of world by storm, but then has a mental health breakdown, sort of kind of drops out of that, ends up in the Hare Krishna movement, um, 
so there was a narrative arc. Celeste is then born, so she comes into the story. So there was, you know, already a narrative arc. So we didn't have to really, I would say, you know, craft a story in that sense. <clears throat> what we had to do was realise the themes within it, you know, and Rebecca was very useful with that. I mean, I learned, I always, I learned, learned from everyone that I worked with, but particularly on this film, I learned loads from Rebecca in terms of actually sitting down and doing things like a, a three-act structure and, 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 what things that I may be with my first two films, they were very instinctive. I wouldn't have done things like that, but now I can see how useful it is to just have a chart. You know, there's one behind me where there's a three act structure there, where there's, you know, plot points, where there's a climax and, you know, little things at this stage, because it's early days, it's just little notes like who we're going to meet, you know, and learning, learning more about how to bring out story beats. So it wasn't a case of necessarily you know, like you would in a drama of knowing your kind of beginning, middle, end. It was more about bringing out the emotion at various points. And and Celeste was very good at being able to say, well, you know, particularly when she was already in the story because she was born. Well, when I was, you know, five years old, you know, I, I, you know, there was no food in the cupboards. I mean, I wanted the story to be like a fairy tale. And that was something that I think helped us in terms of how a fairy tale structure is developed. It's very much things that, you know, a child might be able to not necessarily say, but understand. And there was Celeste, when she was writing her voiceover, you know, there were, there's one beautiful line where she talks about climbing out of the window and she refers to like the cupboards are as empty as my stomach. Things that on the surface sound quite simple, but do kind of hit, hit those beats that, you know, anyone can, you know, there's any ounce of empathy can kind of relate to. Um, yeah, I thought they were really, they're really moving, poetic images, mm. really. Um, I, this might be a good point to I'm, I'm quite interested in hearing about your new film uh, about Tish Murtha mm. this is another woman that sort of weaves poetry in the most unlikely places um, uh, yeah I'm so excited to see to see this new film it'd be good, good to hear a bit about it you've just done a successful another really successful crowdfunding project. Yeah. yeah, and thank you for your contribute. Uh, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan. I've got, because um, I backed the Kickstarter, I bought a photograph, but I've got three uh, Tishmertha prints now. Yeah. And um, I just absolutely love them. Oh, she was wonderful. I mean, I think um, this is a slightly different one. I mean, I'm, I, I haven't met Ella yet, but we were friends online. Ella's Ella Murtha, Tish's daughter, and we were friends online and we were messaging about something. And, you know, of course, anyone is going to want to make a documentary about Tish Murtha if they like her work and they make films. And I said to her, have you ever thought about doing a film? And she said, well, I've been approached a couple of times, but I haven't really wanted to do it. So I said, OK, fine. You know, I'm here. If you ever change your mind, let's have a chat. And so then she said, well, let's have a chat. So we had this really long two hour phone call. And then we met up in person in Newcastle and, you know, it was a case of, I think, meeting each other and talking about the type of story that we'd want to do. And Ella had to be at the heart of it again, you know, because no, I don't think anyone can tell the story um, like Ella can, because, you know, the, the thing I suppose that drew me to it as well was um, Ella and I both only children from, you know, single parents and I remember from being very young, there was almost like a thing with me and my mum, it was kind of, you know, that kind of us against the world type thing. Um, and Tish and Ella certainly had that. And, you know, there's a there's a bond that you have between, you know, more, I would not say any more so than being, you know, the, the child of a single parent, but there can be something quite 
special there. And I think it was something that we kind of connected on. Um, and talking about how to tell the story was, it's very different with Polly because with Polly, there's lots of archive. Tish, there's no video footage of her. Um, so the way that we kind of tell the story with this is through one strand of Ella going out and meeting people that knew her mum, because the, the fundamental question of the film is why has no one heard of Tish Martha? You know, she's in terms of being, you know, a photographer and her work, you know, she's up there with, for me, with like Diane Arbus, you know, I, w I wouldn't say Martin Parr because I'm not a fan of his work. I think his work patronizes working class people and he's a middle class man, but she should have been elevated to that level. And the reason that she wasn't was partly because she was quite stubborn and would never, you know, didn't kind of live with a digital age, but fundamentally it was because she was a working class woman who sacrificed her career to raise her daughter, you know, and as a single mum. So the story kind of follows Ella like meeting people, but then the other strand of it will be a recreation of like Tish's house in a similar to way um, to what, what we kind of saw in like Listen to Me Marlon, where they you know, built Marlon Brando's old house and you can hear narration from him. I mean, we've got, you know, an archive of obviously the photographs, which are vital to it, but there's also correspondence, diary entries, and we want to get, you know, those narrated by someone so you'll be in this living space you won't ever see tish but you'll be in this living space which is you know effectively um a council house but you know their their home was they didn't have a tv tish used to hang her prints all over the wall there would be ephemera from various things that she loved it was a kind of like a memory space and somewhere really warm and intimate so it's kind of telling the story through those two strands of storytelling i think it's We've done one shoot already where we've been in the Northeast and it's also a film that we want to celebrate the Northeast because I think some people have an idea that, you know, that area of, of, of the UK is quite dour or they also see that area of, you know, the, the cheeky Geordie stereotype. And it's, it's, you know, it's not the case. It's as nuanced as any other, you know, city in the UK that has a, a, a stunning beauty to it, to the architecture, to everything else. Yeah, if I, I grew up in Teesside and if I don't get up there, I start getting withdrawal symptoms. I was up last week. Um, yeah, I'm interested. There's just a little time check. There's We've got a few minutes left. So um, if you do have a question for Paul, uh, just put it in the in the chat box and we'll try and try and get it in. But I'm, I am interested in knowing what is, you know, both films, I Am A Cliche and the Tish Murtha one, a film's about mothers told by mothers who have died and their surviving um, only children, their daughters, telling them, what have you learned from the polystyrene film that you'll take forward into the Tish Murtha film? I think really trusting like a, daughter, a daughter's in instincts. You know, Celeste, um, in terms of where she went with the story, um, in terms of, you know, her being able to tell it, of just being able to collaborate with someone in that way. And on already with Ella, you know, we've had lots and lots of phone calls and chats and being able to talk about the story and just trusting Ella's instincts, you know. And if there's moments where I'm not quite sure of something, um, I would go with what Ella thinks because, you know, I, I think I, I would hope I would have done that anyway, but having done it with Celeste and realised that, you know, there's only real, there's a, there's only one person can tell the story in that way, and it's and it is the daughter. It is if you're following that journey of someone learning about their mum and, and discovering things about their mum, then it's it's important to, that you have their lens on it. You know that it's their experience that you're making it with them 
rather than about them, you know. And um, I think making polys has hopefully, you know, will stand me in good stead on, in that in that respect. Yeah, I keep thinking about the phrase "nothing about us without us." Yeah, you know, being being a respectful. Um, uh, I think I think it's really important. I think the thing I've sort of learned over the last few films is that you just can't take consent for granted. You know, just because someone signs up for a film, mm. that doesn't mean to say that you should just, you know, you don't just keep on rolling. It's something that you have to constantly think yeah. about and negotiate and have a open discussion about oh completely I mean we were filming the other week and there was a moment where we just stopped filming because it, it wasn't right and I, I I always want I don't want to be that person that leaves things rolling because they think they're going to get like a really emotional moment I know that to a lot of filmmakers particularly in documentary they would consider that to be counterproductive to the work but I think for me the reason you get the access and you get the privilege of making these films is because you show that respect and I don't want to see people like people are crying on camera and they want to continue crying and they kind of say no keep going then you can but you know if they don't it, it came to me really but watching the Grenfell footage back in you know 2017 and there were these people on camera that were obviously gone through like this massive trauma that were really you know floods of tears and everything else and journalists interviewing them and pushing them and cajoling them and I thought that was incredibly irresponsible yeah, you know, and I know news is very different to documentary, but I would never be comfortable not just going, okay, we stop. And I've done it throughout, you know, my um, time where there have been moments where people are very obviously upset, and we just stop. You know, we just stop. I, I'm not one of those. The only time I ever kept filming when, um, you know, uh, in a situation like that was a, a film I've made about um, homeless dog owners, and this guy just came into our space and started berating. Um, this woman for being homeless and having a dog and in his case I kept rolling obviously we have to pixelate his face because he was being you know he was being abusive he was we checked she was okay and she was fine but we then she walked away and we filmed him just being you know abusive to the to the presenter and everything else because he was a bigger and I wanted to expose him but anyone else that's kind of mm. suffering or is in, in a moment of trauma I would always stop yeah the the brilliant director Kim Longinotto she's been really kind to me um a, a supportive fellow director and she said to me you need to think about when you leave is as important as when you arrive that's a really yeah it's a really great way of, of phrasing that I agree it's really important so we've got time for what we've got one last question's come in and then um we'll have to wrap up so it's from Marcus Rel Relton how yeah. did you come to make dispossession as a departure from your other two film subjects? I mean, Dispossession was the second film I made and um, it came about because the Owsbury estate, which features in the film, which is in South East London, um, when I was a kid, when my mum was at work, I'd get dropped off there to my cousin, my cousin June, who was like my second mum. So when I you know, found out what was happening with the estate, it was going to be demolished against some of the, the wishes of some of the residents. It sparked an interest in making a film about the neglect of council housing, the kind of social cleansing of working class communities in London. And it arose from a personal experience really. And the more we kind of research we did, it was obviously not just happening in London, but in Glasgow, in, in even in, you know, like areas that you might not necessarily expect that are kind of outside of metropolitan areas. If there's any kind of covetable postcode where developers get a sense that, you know, they can, you know, build a Nando's and things like that, 
and there'll be a section of affluent middle class people that will spend money there. Then they're going to want to, you know, demolish these spaces and talk about horrible words like density rather than talking about homes. It was very much a film that was informed by my experience of, you know, I lived on a council estate when I was very young. I knew that council housing and social housing wasn't what we were being fed. It wasn't, you know, as David Cameron was saying, you know, for places, for people like these places called sink estates and for degenerate people and, and criminality. These are places that were fundamentally safe homes, um, secure and affordable for, for lots and lots of people. So it was kind of made to, I don't know, celebrate something that was from my youth, but also people that, you know, my family that still live on estates, really. Mm. Okay, well, we're almost out of time. So it'd be really good if you could let the audience know where they can find out more about you and your work. Um, yeah, if you wanted to find out more, um, I've got a website that is, it does need updating, but it's um, velvetjoyproductions.com. Um, I'm on Twitter um, as at Paul Sung. And yeah, you can watch Dispossession on the BFI player. Um, you can watch Polly on the Modern Film Cinema player. And yeah, thank you. Really good to chat to you, Jeannie. Oh, it's absolute joy to watch the film, but always, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Cheers. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.